I've never introduced a sermon by saying, look at my t-shirt, but look at my t-shirt. And I want to say thank you to Will and Mandy Dumproff, so kind of them. They felt bad because they know my wife has given me the hard, no way you're getting a tattoo of the Liberty Tree. So this is a consolation prize. Thank you. She says my skin's too pretty. That's the reason. So I, I'll go with it. It's fine. But this is significant, so I'm going to go with it here. We are in a series right now called Proud to be an American, and we are going back into the history books, tying into God's Word. We're going into the, the, the facts of the history books, looking at direct quotes and actions and laws from the Founding Fathers to say, what was this country truly founded upon that we can be proud about as Americans, as American Christians? Not in any way to say America's perfect and never done anything wrong. But if we actually go back into the history books, there are some incredible things that don't get talked about enough. For example, if you didn't already know, this was essentially the first American flag. This was flown by the Continental Army. This was flown by the Continental Navy. It's a liberty tree. It became known as the liberty tree flag. Because that was the goal of the founders, was to build a society, to frame and construct a society that would bring liberty for all. And at the very base of it is an appeal to God. And we've seen this over and over in a variety of quotes and laws and ways and conversations that the founders said, this does not work, this will not work if we don't have a deep dependence on God. Like one of my favorite founders, John Adams, said, the Constitution itself was written for a religious and moral people. It will not work, paraphrasing, it will not work if the people don't have that foundation. And so we've been looking at various aspects and, and in a sense, building this liberty tree as it starts with the foundation of an appeal to God and it, then it goes into a morality, a character based on the word of God, based on the Judeo-Christian worldview of what character and virtue looks like. And that leads into individual rights, which leads into personal responsibility. And that hopefully will grow the liberty tree in this country. And so this morning, we're going to continue that conversation. And we're going to just head, just address head on one of the primary critiques of America that is hot right now. And then in fact, in fact, sets to undermine kind of the whole series, saying really there's not a lot to be proud about as an American. There's a, a message, even a, a sentiment that has become, in some ways, shockingly mainstream that America itself is a failed experiment, that there's no inherent goodness and morality and virtue. Certainly, we can't be the light on the hill or city on a hill, as many of the, the founders and presidents have said and quoted a, a pastor from way back in the 1640s and 30s. And that perspective that America is failed and probably needs to be 
redone. You, you can feel it in the, the senses of if anything's old, if anything's traditional, if anything's been around for a while, if anything could be connected back to the founding fathers, it just needs to be canceled. It's inherently immoral. And that sentiment really reaches a fever pitch when slavery and racism are talked about. And so we want to just talk about that. We want to be bold. We're a church that says, let's go after important things. Let's not be shy to address hard issues. And so I want to talk this morning specifically about the, the sentiment and the claim that America is, is a failed experiment because we are, as a nation, irredeemably racist. Along with that go the sentiments that, well, all of the founding fathers were racist, they all had slaves, Declaration of Independence is racist, the Constitution is racist, the whole system's built on racial inequality. So I want to dive into the history books and the Bible and take a, a sober, objective look for truth. And this, this honestly, this, this, there's, there's, some, there's some painful things in here, this I believe there's hope, clear hope, good hope. Uh, but even doing all the research for this and getting back into it, man, it's, there's, there's painful sin in our, in our history. No, no question about that. And I'm not going to try to gloss over that. But what I want to do is try to get into a sober perspective of the history books and, and say, what, what did the founders truly intend? What can we learn from it? Are there things to be proud about today that we can promote? Are there lies? Are there assumptions and lies that are being told that we can say, no, that's really not how it was? And I believe there are many. And the first one was, it's a very important one. It was spoken by a United States senator just in July. Tim Kaine of Virginia declared on the floor of the Senate the United States didn't inherit, excuse me, didn't inherit slavery from anybody. We created it. This is a 2020, July of 2020, United States senator. So these are the kind of things like, wow, that is a incredible statement. That this is what is being told to the, the younger generations who are not getting a whole lot of history in the schools. And when leaders, and it's equal among celebrities and athletes, make these kind of claims that then, you know, the world we live in is the tweet culture. So the meme culture, the tweet culture, and this gets put out as just truth. Goes into the minds and hearts. No wonder there's strong sentiment that, oh, America, irredeemable irredeemably racist in every form and way. I mean, in fact, as our leaders are telling us, we didn't inherit slavery, we created it. We invented it. So let's, let's just dig into that a bit. And this, there's multiple kind of questions we're going to ask. This one is honestly the most painful because it gets us into a, a, a reality of human history not just U.S. history, that has got to be one of the most painful things that a, a human-loving, God-fearing human can ever see. 
I mean, way back in, in Genesis 1, when God said, let us create all of humanity in my image. Right there, it, there's a declaration of equality from God. That all of humanity was created with the, with the image of God, the stamp, like no other creature. No other creature was, was, had the privilege to be told that we are created in the very image of God. As C.S. Lewis says, so anytime you encounter a human, you are having one of the most holy experiences possible, if you can see it. That there is eternal worth and value, inestimable. Can't even fathom how valuable each and every human is because of God's stamp of his very image. And so when we look into the question of the history of slavery, it is painful. What you see immediately is what Tim Kaine said is absolutely preposterous. Even as a hyperbole, every single empire that has ever existed in human history has had slaves. It is not in any fashion an American invention. Go look at Greece, Rome, Egypt, China, Aztecs, Mongols, on and on and on. You name it. It was there. As we get more towards the, the colonies of America, the English colonies, and the history of becoming a country, what was a massive part of that, tragically, was the transatlantic trans slave trade. That ran from 1501 to 1875. And so famously, in, in 1619, the first slave ship from Portugal was, was captured here by an English group of essentially pirates and brought into Virginia and ultimately to Jamestown. And so that's often said, and there's a strong sentiment, oh, that's the founding of our country. Well, let's go back a little bit to where the transatlantic slave trade started and where are the roots of it. So 1501, that's 107 years before Jamestown was founded. It's 120 years before the pilgrims came here seeking religious freedom and seeking to spread the gospel to the unreached people groups, which Jesus said is our mandate as Christians to take the good news to the ends of the earth. Before that happened, a hundred and so years, slavery became a massive issue. So it began in the north coast of Africa, in what was known at the time as Barbaria, Barbaria, present-day Algeria, Tunisia, Morocco, part of the Ottoman Empire at the time. And at that time, slavery began, and there was over a million white Europeans that were stolen from the peninsula there, of, or the island and the, of, of Europe, Western Europe, and, and what is now Britain. And that also moved then down and into West Africa. And the Barbary pirates, as they became known, had a very complex system. They started and capitalized on unfortunate tribal warfare that was going on in, in Western Africa at the time and began to say, hey, instead of conquering these tribes and killing one another, what about if you capture them, we'll buy them? An absolute tragic reality of history. Then other nations began to say, hey, look what they're doing. Free labor could help us. And tragically, almost all of Europe got involved. 
the Portuguese were the first country outside of the, the Barbary pirates, and in 1526, they went to engage in the Atlantic slave trade, and, and they were the first to bring slaves from Africa across the Atlantic and into Brazil. Many other European nations followed. Britain, Spain, France, the Dutch, the Danish, several established outposts in Western Africa where they purchased slaves from other local African leaders. Throughout the nearly 400 tragic years of the transatlantic slave trade, scholars are really in agreement that it was about 12 and a half million Africans that were taken tragically to be slaves around the world. But what shocked me was the numbers of where they actually ended up. So let's get that graph up there. And this is, these numbers are really not disputed by many scholars. These are pretty well agreed upon. Spain and her territories received over a million slaves, 8.5%. France, a million point three eleven percent Great Britain, 3.5 million, 26%. The Netherlands, half a million, 4%. And what's the greatest offender of all? Probably the United States of America, right? Portugal and Brazil, 5.5 million, almost 6, 47%. When all is said and done, the United States in the whole time, the entire time, received just over 300,000, totaling 2.4%. Now, that is no excuse whatsoever for the sin of slavery, and make no mistake whatsoever, it is 100% sin, but it's, that's a sobering perspective. Honestly, when I went into this whole process of research, I was like scared, like, what are we going to find? And it's horrible, 2.4%, 300,000 people, that's unacceptable, I mean, that's, that's a tragedy in every way and shape or form but the United States did certainly not invent slavery. You know what invented slavery? Sin. From the moment that sin entered the world, sin has began erecting what the Bible calls walls of hostility between various groups of people. As Psalm, 1, or Psalm 14 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, and they are corrupted to do abominable things, abominable deeds. There's no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. And, and, and sadly, you can look back on the history of the world and that's the reality when it comes to slavery. No one has done good, not even one. When, when we say in our hearts that we don't need God, when we act a fool, we don't need God, then abominable deeds follow. And sadly, that is what you see in the history books. You see, essentially, every nation, if they have the opportunity and if they're not following the law of God and the Spirit of God, then abominable deeds follow. And slavery is one of those. Sin builds walls of hostility. I mean, it is such an inherent problem in humanity that the Bible specifically states that this is part of what Christ 
was doing on the cross was to break down walls of hostility between groups of people that sin had erected. In Ephesians 2, Paul says it like this, For he himself, Jesus, is our peace. He is our only hope for peace. He has made us both one. Who's both in that context? He's specifically talking, you could back up a little bit and see it, about two racial ethnic groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, who had at times throughout their history been involved in violent conflict of one another. So he is saying those two groups, and it expands beyond that. It's not just those two groups. Galatians 3.28 is where it talks about the gospel saying, in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek nor male nor female nor slave nor free, but all are one in Christ. What are those groups? Why are those groups mentioned? Because those are the groups where there are walls of hostility that sin has erected from the beginning. And so Christ came in part, not only to reconcile us to God, but to reconcile us to one another. Who's us? All of humanity. That in Christ, he is our hope for peace. That those walls of hostility that we can all feel and we've all experienced, and you can see in the history books as clear as day, God's heart is that those walls would come down. Ephesians 2. He himself is our peace, who has made us both one and broken down in his body the dividing wall of hostility that he might create in himself, or by his power, in other words, one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace. In other words... Jesus died on the cross to break down barriers of hostility between humanity wherever they exist, wherever sin had built up these strong walls where you feel like you're in a group, where it just says it's me against them. Why? Well, because I'm this group and they're that group. That is inherently sinful in, e in e every fashion and form that it takes. It is what Jesus came to say, I want to break that down. It's not enough for me to say, you're right with God. My body is being torn apart on the cross, so that reality of you and God being right can take place, and so that you can look around and that in Christ, all those other walls of hostility can fall. And then, therefore, he gives us that mandate to be agents of reconciliation, as Paul says a little bit later. But by our witness, by the character transformation, by the law of God that's written on our hearts and the power of the Spirit flowing through us, we are to be agents of reconciliation that break down walls of hostility. It is part of our mission and mandate. But sadly, those effects of sin are seen all over the history books when it comes to slavery, as I've already mentioned. And even in this country, and, and I'm going to give a couple examples that were shocking to me. I did not know that. I did not know them. They're, they're horrible to hear. 
We know slavery existed. We know that slavery was a horrible institution that was devastating to 300,000 people and their kin and their offspring and absolutely wrong. But there's even more to it than that. Do you know that one of the first court rulings on this soil by the English colonies, it was the Virginia colony in 1653 that for the first time ever made a judicial determination holding that a person who had committed no crime could be held in servitude for life. In other words, ushering in slavery. This was one of the first instances, 1653. This is early. This is 30 years after Jamestown, 40 years after it began. 20 years after slavery had started, 30 years, excuse me. You know what I found absolutely shocking in this situation? The two parties involved, one was a freed black man named Anthony Johnson, and, and he was taking permanent ownership of another black man named John Kaser. Anthony Johnson came here maybe in 1619 on that one or that San Batista Portuguese slave ship. Others, there's some fuzziness in the history books, maybe it was uh, 1621, he came, and most of those folks became indentured servants, which we look upon today as like, wow, that was horrible, and it is in a way, especially when it can lead to lifetime of slavery, it was in that time, it was a normal way for people to, if they didn't have money, to say, we want to get over here, we'll work for four to seven years, and at the, at the end, we'll be given land, property, and a start to, you know, make something for ourselves. Now, when that Portuguese slave ship arrived, they didn't have a choice, but most of those folks were granted indentured servitude. And between four to 10 years, they were free. That is the case of Anthony Johnson. He was an indentured servant, came over on a slave ship. He worked the time, got his freedom, got land from the Virginia colony. They gave him acreage and he began to become a tobacco farmer, became very wealthy, became very good at it, to the point where he, in his life, purchased 500 indentured servants. Most of them got free. But in this case, in this very sad case, he went to the, the court rulings and saying, hey, this, this guy, John Kaser, is, is not working. I'm never going to get my money back on him, essentially. And John went to the courts and said, this guy is not letting me go. I've worked my time. And the court ruled in favor of Anthony Johnson and said, you haven't worked enough. He's yours for life. That is, wow. Um, along those same lines, Carter Woodson, who is a very well-known from the 1930s black professor, he helped bring a nationalized black history month. He wrote a quote, journal of Negro history that was published in 1930. In, the, in that publication in 1930, he cites the census of 1830. Listen to these numbers. This is, I had no idea this ever existed. In 1830, which shows that in 1830, so just a little timeline, 1776, Declaration of Independence, War for Revol American Revolution, 1780, 78, the Constitution is adopted, and so this is a while after that. This is about a generation, 50 years or so. We're coming up on the Civil War. So in 1830, the census reveals that 
43% of free blacks in South Carolina owned black slaves. 40% of free blacks in Louisiana owned black slaves in 1830. By the 1860 census, the five largest Native American tribes had the highest percentage of black slave ownership of any ethnic group in America. Whereas 8% of the general population were slaves on Native American lands, 12% of the population were slaves. There's a museum curator named Paul Chaat Smith, who's Comanche, and they just opened a, a recent exhibit called The Americans at the National Museum of American Indians. And it sadly affirms these things, where he said going back into the history books was painful for him. For example, he found out that Choctaw Chief Greenwood Lafour had 15,000 acres in Mississippi and owned 400 slaves. And he said the five civilized tribes, that's what they were called, the five most prominent tribes, Cherokee, Chickasaw, Choctaw Creek, Seminole, were deep, this is his quote, were deeply committed to slavery, established their own racialized black codes, excuse me, racialized black codes, immediately reestablished established slavery when they arrived in Indian territory, when they were given the reservations, immediately established slavery, rebuilt their nations with slave labor, crushed slave rebellions, and enthusiastically sided with Confederacy in the Civil War. And he said, I used to like history. Sometimes I still do, but not most of the time now. Wow. Sin is the problem. If you look into the history books, it is not a white European problem. Did white Europeans in this land do horrible things and promote slavery and live by slavery and some get rich by slavery? Absolutely. Is that the whole piece of the story? Not in the least bit when you look into the history books. Sin is the problem. Sin invented slavery. Sin invented that desire to have, to, to have power over others in a way that would rob them of the dignity of God. This is Psalm 14.1. When the fool says in their hearts, there is no God. There is no God in that person standing in front of me. And when the law of God is not written on the hearts and the spirit of God is not flowing through the heart, as Psalm 14 says, they will do, we will do, people have done abominable deeds. All of that points to what the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We need a Savior. They needed a Savior. Everyone in the future needs a Savior, or this will be repeated. Jesus is the hope, as he said in Ephesians 2, as Paul said, he is the hope for a new humanity. That is God's heart. That is God's will. That's what Jesus came to do, to reconcile us to God and reconcile us to one another and break down every wall of hostility. That is, for me, was a painful look into the history books. But America did certainly not invent slavery. All right, got a few more. We're going to go quicker here. Were all of the founders racist? We hear that a lot. Let's just roll through a few. John Adams, second president of the United States, assisted in drafting the Declaration of Independence, said this, and a very strong Christian, Every measure of prudence, therefore, ought to be assumed for the eventual total extirpation of slavery from the United States. I have, throughout my whole life, held the practice of slavery in abhorrence. 
John Jay, first chief justice of the Supreme Court and very strong Christian founding father. It is much to be wished that slavery be abolished. The honor of the United States, as we as justice and humanity, in my opinion, loudly call upon them to emancipate these unhappy people, to contend for our own liberty, and to deny that blessing to others involves an inconsistency not to be excused. And that's the primary argument right now, where people throw out, oh, get rid of the founding fathers, get rid of the original documents, they had slaves, it's such hypocrisy. Where here you have a founding father, <laughs> like, hey, whoever just said that, that, you didn't invent that. The founding fathers were saying that to one another. They're saying if we are to be a people of liberty and justice, it is inexcusable that we would have slavery. Who was saying it? The Christian founding fathers. Benjamin Rush, signer of the Declaration, first surgeon general, educator, Ye men of sense and virtue, ye advocates for American liberty, rouse up and espouse the cause of humanity and general liberty. Bear a testimony against a vice which degrades human nature and dissolves that universal tie of benevolence which should connect all children of men together in one great family. Sounds like Ephesians 2. The plant of liberty is of so tender a nature it cannot thrive long in the neighborhood of slavery. Those are three very outspoken Christian founders. And it didn't stop there. Governor Morris, a signer of the Constitution, he was railing against the southern states in the Constitutional Convention for what he called their defiance of the most sacred laws of humanity that tears his fellow creatures from his dearest connection and damns them to the most crucial bondage. George Mason, one of the founders and signers of the Constitutional Convention, or excuse me, he refused to sign the Constitution because it didn't 100% outlaw slavery. George Washington himself said, I wish from my soul that the legislature of this state, of Virginia, he's talking about, could see a policy of gradual abolition of slavery. Washington owned slaves, over 100. It's complicated. He inherited slaves at 11 years old. What are you going to do at 11 years old when your family tells you this is just how the world works? But, but what you see throughout his lifetime is this growing sense, this reality, this conviction that this is not okay. To the point where at, on his deathbed, he had, he had rewritten his will. And at the time, the Virginia laws stated that you could not free your slaves if you wanted to. You could not. The only provision was at your death, you could free your slaves. So Washington, at some point in his life, rewrote his will to include the emancipation of all his slaves. And upon his dying deathbed, there was two wills. And he, and, and he brought, said, bring them both to me. He knew he was dying, and he said, tear up that one. It was the one that didn't include the provision for the emancipation of all his slaves. So upon his death, all his slaves were free. They were cared for, they were educated, etc. George Washington, Thomas Jefferson wanted to do the same thing, also from Virginia. The Virginia legislature changed the law that said you can't do that anymore. If you have any debt whatsoever, you can't free your slaves. So Jefferson was not allowed to free his slaves because he had a lot of debt. I, said, I think they said upwards of two, over $2 million in today's money. 
So he couldn't free his slaves. So what did he do? Various other things. He introduced legislation several times as early as 1777 to introduce, and he introduced laws that would have abolished slavery. Do you know that after the Declaration of Independence, that horribly racist document, which we'll get to in a minute, and before the Constitution, another horribly racist document, Jefferson, who wrote the Declaration, he introduced legislature to the Congress that would have completely abolished slavery in all of the states, and it failed by one vote. One state's vote. When all was said and done, historians count that 70% of the 56 signers of the Declaration of Independence were anti-slavery. So let's get into the Declaration a little bit more. Because this is often pointed to as perfect example of how America is built on racism. Because look, it says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And people say, well, how? look, they didn't mean it. They had slaves. How can you say that all men are created equal? Do you know that in the first draft of the Declaration of Independence, that Jefferson proposed to the Continental Congress that he wanted to have passed. That includes all of the beautiful language that we've seen now. And as we looked at a few weeks ago, it also lists a bunch of grievances against the king, which are essentially, these are the specific reasons why we are declaring independence from you. These are the specific wrongs that you have done and why we must, we are convinced, we have the conviction, and they say in there, and if, and if we be just, then God bless it. If righteousness is on our side, then God bless it. So they had these convictions of the, the wrong that the king was doing and why they must declare themselves their own country, why they must declare independence and start new. I was shocked to find this. In the original Declaration of Independence, this is included as a grievance. Quote, the king has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere, and, or to incur miserable death in, in their transportation thither. This piratical warfare, the opprobrium of infidel powers, is the warfare of the supposed Christian king of Great Britain, determined to keep open a market where men, sh that's a key word, should be brought and sold, bought and sold. He has prostituted his negative for suppressing every legislative attempt to prohibit or restrain this execrable commerce, which means bad. I had to look that up. But look what he says. In this grievance against the king, the word men, which is that word in the original, the preamble, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. And in the very document that Jefferson wanted passed, he includes in that men, Slaves. 
So do the people that say, oh, he was just talking about white men, white European. No, he was not. In fact, he was arguing that the slaves are humans too. So they should be included in our preamble where all men are created equal. So this grievance against the slave trade was actually the longest grievance in the Declaration of Independence. It had the most words underlined or capitalized for emphasis. This would have essentially founded the United States as an anti-slavery country. But you know what happened when they voted? Two colonies said, nope, we're not doing it. Two of 13. Can you imagine how history would be changed? Two of 13 colonies says, no, can't do it. By that time, they were deeply entrenched in the slave trade, and their economy depended upon it, and the wickedness continued. But that is fascinating. Flip it around. 11 of the 13 original colonies tried to, in writing in the Declaration of Independence, create a new nation and country with no slavery. That would have been the first ever in history. And by two colonies, it failed. Moving on into the Constitution. Is the Constitution racist? This is another one that gets a lot of press, specifically because of the three-fifths clause, which says that slaves were counted as three-fifths of a human. That's how it's determined. So it's like, look, right there in the Constitution, it says that slaves, so essentially at that time, Africans brought here, black people are less than fully human. It says it right there in the Constitution. What do you do? Game over right there. Wrong. The Constitution had established, what it was establishing was that for every 30,000 inhabitants in a state they would receive one representative in Congress. So you know the whole bicameral legislature, House of Representatives. So back in the time, it was 30,000 people, you get one. So the southern states, those same ones that voted against the Declaration being anti-slavery, and now a couple more, those southern states saw this as an opportunity to strengthen their economy, strengthen the, the stronghold of slavery, and so they were pushing for slaves to be counted one-to-one. -one. So the majority of the signers, so just kind of let that marinate, what's going on. If that were to take place and the southern... And slave owners were able to count their slaves as the population, as part of the population that would essentially doubled the number of pro-slavery representatives in Congress. And so the northern states primarily who wanted to get rid of slavery from the beginning and still wanted to get rid of slavery said no. And they came up with what is called a three-fifths compromise. So what was going on was that the majority of the signers were objecting to counting the slaves as one-to-one -one because they did not want to reward slaveholders and increase their power of representation. 
So in other words, the infamous three-fifths clause was not to dehumanize black people, but rather to specifically punish slave owners and decrease their, reputa- their representation in Congress. So you know, it's exactly the opposite of the narrative today, where it's like, oh, see, it's just dehumanizing black people. It was an attempt so that the nation didn't blow apart into civil war at its inception, inception to make a compromise, but it was a specific compromise to punish slaveholding because their desire was to phase it out. The famous abolitionist Frederick, Frederick Douglass investigated this claim about the Constitution and whether it was anti-slavery. If you don't know about Frederick Douglass, that is a biography to read. I don't know if it's still in, in public schools. I know that my son at a Christian school read it last year. It's a biography of his time as a slave. He was born in the South. He was born into slavery. And he details in great horror the, the human tragedy, the sinful tragedy of what slavery is, a book everyone should read. He then escaped went to the north, became an abolitionist, became a preacher, became a presidential advisor to the first four administrations. As he examined the Constitution, this was his conclusion. I was on the anti-slavery question, fully committed to the doctrine touching the pro-slavery character of the Constitution. In other words, I was assuming the Constitution was pro-slavery, I advocated this with pen and tongue according to the best of my ability. However, upon a latter reconsideration of the whole subject, I became convinced that the Constitution of the United States not only contained no guarantees in favor of slavery, but on the contrary. It is in its letter and spirit an anti-slavery instrument demanding the abolition of slavery as a condition of its own existence and the supreme law of the land. In other words, what he saw in reading the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, the spirit behind it, the trajectory of it, the specific laws and where it was going, he says, my conclusion is this is an anti-slavery document. Moving on to some later dates and developments and try to wrap it up quick here. But there are some incredibly crucial things. There is an idea that, well, you got the Declaration, you got the Constitution, man, the whole thing. The whole system was clearly just built on and for racism. Hopefully what you've seen already is that that is absolutely not true. There was a war against slavery and a war against racism from the beginning and we see it continued to be fought shortly after the constitution was ratified in 1789 congress expanded so just a couple years after the constitution was ratified congress expanded its fight to end slavery by passing what is known as the northwest ordinance what is that for all these racist founders That's the law that forbade slavery in any other federal territories that were new. In other words, 
to all the land that people were beginning to populate and wanting to become states, the founders said no states coming into the Union can have slaves. And do you know that Jefferson sent preachers into Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Iowa, Minnesota in order to stir up the people with anti-slavery sentiments? He took the church and said, hey, I need you guys to go in there and just make sure the hearts of the people are right and that there's not resistance to this Northwest Ordinance. I mean, it, that is in the history books clearly. That's an amazing reality. Jefferson, with all the, the baggage that he has associated with him in slavery, sent Christian preachers into the new states to say, we got to make sure the tide doesn't turn. We've got to make sure the people's hearts are staying in the right direction with the Northwest Ordinance, which says no more slavery in the new, in the new states. That's incredible. Massachusetts itself, home of the Puritans, had the honor of being the only state to have abolished slavery completely by the time the first census was taking place in 1790 in this country. Vermont was not far behind. Do you know that by 1804, so this is 20 years after the country was founded essentially, all of the New England states, Massachusetts and all their close friends, including Vermont, New York, New Jersey, they had either completely abolished slavery or enacted laws for the gradual abolition of it by 1804. And that was swelling. This is the northern. They have strong convictions on this. And they are trying to end slavery to the point that, do you know, and I don't know why we don't know this more, in 1807, the United States Congress passed the first ever abolishment of the slave trade in the history of the world. It was signed in 1807. It was ratified in January of 1808. England actually beat us to it in the application of it. So we influenced them, and Wilberforce is doing his awesome work in England to abolish the slave trade. Great movie about him and the wrestling he had with that. Ab Christian abolitionists leading the movement there. So they actually uh, signed the law a little later than us in 1807, but they enacted it earlier. But this is a stunning reality, that America signed the first law in the history of the world banning slave trade. Meaning there is no more transatlantic slave trade that is allowed to happen on this land. That's, it didn't abolish slavery. That came later. But it was the first step. Here's, here's, here's what stands out to me. No one in the world had ever passed this law. Every single empire before this time had years and years and years, hundreds, some thousands of years to reflect upon the reality of slavery because they all had slaves. And it was within 20 years of America being a nation where they had enough moral character and self-reflection to say this needs to stop. And they passed the first law in the history of the world banning slave trade. From 1790 to 1810, the number of free blacks in America increased 
by 82%, from 60,000 to 108,000. Those first two decades of America's revolution saw the, the, strong, the greatest move of voluntary emancipation that the world had ever seen. Now, unfortunately, in 1820, most of the founders are dead, and, and some dark things happened. The Missouri Compromise was a law passed by Congress that reversed the Northwest Ordinance and now allowed new states coming in to have slaves. And for that next 40 years in American history, there is a very tragic and dark time where slavery multiplied greatly until America went to war with itself to say slavery is not okay. And after 1865, America abolished slavery and became only the fourth nation in the history of the world to ever do so. We got to hear that. Became only the fourth nation by 1865. Some people, oh, it's so late. Britain was the first in 1833. Yes, that's a 30-year, very dark, bad period. But still, only the fourth nation of the 125 nations that existed at the time. Nobody's doing this, essentially. And America fought for it. The United States literally fought a war with itself to end slavery. But my conviction is, yes, that was the Civil War, but America, the United States, has always been at war with itself to end slavery. People critique America today as if we're this... You know, as if we as a nation are this, this scourge and stain on an otherwise upright history of civilizations. But no country in the world other than Britain had voluntarily outlawed slave trade and slavery until the United States. And, and, and what continues to stick out is and that was less than 100 years after the nation's existence. So critics say, oh, we need to get rid of all America's ideals because they allowed slavery. But I would argue that it's precisely because of the religious and moral foundation that the U.S. had right here on the Liberty Tree, starting with an appeal to God, and that Judeo-Christian worldview that then said we need to build our morality and character on virtue, on God's word, it was precisely because we had those foundations, we were able to then have the collective character to do the self-reflection as a nation that brought about the abolition of the slave trade and slavery in less time and in greater measure than any country before us. And that's a fact. I mean, you think Egypt had 3,000 years of slavery. 3,000 years of, a, of, a, of an empire, of a civilization to reflect upon the treatment of slaves and never grew the moral authority to outlaw slavery. Greece had over 1,000 years of slavery and never grew the moral authority to outlaw slavery. Rome had over 500 years 
to self-reflect on the reality of the rampant slavery and never grew the moral authority to outlaw slavery. No, no empire in history did until Britain and the U.S. in the middle of the 18th century. In less than 100 years of existing as a country slash empire. And I am not in any way trying to erase the horrible reality that slavery and racism existed in this country. But as what you're hopefully seeing is there's so much more to the story that there has been a fight for the soul of America from the beginning. And it's not that we need to wipe out all of America's foundations and wipe out all of, of America's ideals. It's that, no, we need to keep fighting that war within we need to be reliant upon Jesus as our appeal to heaven so that we have the character, the law of God written on our heart and the spirit of God flowing through us so that we fight the good fight to put down whatever sin wants to erect those walls of hostility. I want to close with a, a quote from Dr. King. I think he captures the wrestling of this so well, this battle for the soul of America that has been going on from the beginning, and I would argue has gone on in every civilization and every people group and every tribe and every nation, every empire in the history of the world, and America actually stands out as an exceptional example of overcoming that great sin. We're not done. We're not there yet. But we're fighting, and we overcame so much more than our predecessors. So Dr. King said this, One of the great tragedies of life is that men seldom bridge the gulf between practice and profession, between doing and saying. A persistent schizophrenia leaves so many of us tragically divided against ourselves. This is the Apostle Paul talking about that war within it can be a person, it can be a family, it can be a nation. On the one hand, we proudly profess, profess certain sublime and noble principles, but on the other hand, we sadly practice the very antithesis of these principles. How often our lives are characterized by a high blood pressure of creeds and an anemia of deeds. We talk eloquently about our commitment to the principles of Christianity, and yet our lives are saturated with the practices of paganism. We proclaim our devotion to democracy, but we sadly practice the very opposite of the democratic creed. We talk passionately about peace, and at the same time, we assiduously prepare for war. We make fervent pleas for the high road of justice, and then we tread unflinchingly the low road of injustice. This strange dichotomy, but I'll say that war within, this agonizing gulf between the ought and the is represents the tragic theme of man's earthly pilgrimage. This is Dr. King working from the same Christian worldview as our founding fathers, calling America to have its deeds live up to its creeds. So the, the idea is the foundation is good. The foundation does not need to be canceled or demonized or replaced. As the Constitution says, it's that we'll, we're still fighting for a more perfect union.
our deeds need to live up to our creeds. That was a prophetic call from the moment this nation began. And it's the same call for today. It's the same call that's in the Bible. It's fight the good fight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your help once again. We recognize the war within and how that war within has played out tragically in the history of the world when sin has reigned. We thank you that there is hope. We thank you that Jesus came for exactly that purpose, where sin reigned reigned in our mortal bodies. Christ reigns now. Our heart is, may Christ reign. May Christ reign in each and every one of our hearts. May the law of God be written on our hearts. We ask for help. May the Spirit of God help us to live it out in every single human interaction that we see. And may it spread through us to family, to friends, to city, state, to the nation. God, in the same way that the founders, in the best that they knew how, as frail and imperfect human beings, declared their dependence upon you, we pray, we declare our dependence upon you and ask that you would help us be men and women of courage that fight the good fight every single day so that justice rolls down like waters, as is your will, as your word says. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Dance like David